Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. My name is Anthony Kazazis, and I am the director of the NYC Network Group, as well as the NYC Real Estate Expo. And I'd like to thank you for registering for today's Billions in the Institutional Capital Supporting Private Lending Space webinar sponsored by WeLend LLC. WeLend LLC is a hard money lender focused on servicing real estate investors by providing quick and low cost capital on their investment properties. WeLend's approach to lending is centered around the investor, therefore allowing investors to focus more on their investment and less on the loan process. WeLend was founded by a group of real estate investors whose emphasis was on acquiring and improving distressed properties. So whether or not you are an experienced real estate investor, WeLend's team has the qualifications to exceed expectations and can assist in the expansion of your real estate portfolio. Today, you'll learn from the leaders in the private lending industry as they dig into the current state of the fix and flip lending market. Today's panels of experts will also provide insight on the recent trends of institutional funds getting into the fix and flip arena. When you have a question, please type it up and send it into the Q&A section, not the chat section. Today's moderator is Andrew Snitzer, partner at the Wheelen LLC. His guest panelists are John Beecham, CEO and founder of Turek Capital Partners, Kevin Kim, partner and attorney at Garasi LLP, Jonathan Hornick, partner and attorney at LHRNG Private Lending Law.com. Uh, Jonathan, let's start off with you. One minute. Tell us all about yourself and your firm. Nice to see everybody. Uh, a lot of these, uh, I see a lot of these people are some of our clients. I see other people at industry events. Uh, my name is John Hornick. I chair the private lending group at LaRocco Hornick, Rosen, and Greenberg. We're a nationwide firm with offices at 40 Wall Street in Manhattan and in Freehold, New Jersey, home of Bruce Springsteen, for those of you who don't know. So uh, our practice is full service for the private lending space. We do everything from executing closings in 50 states to uh, preparing and negotiating master loan participation agreements, credit facilities, representing both aggregators and the borrower. Uh, we do regulatory in 50 states, private placements, and everything in between. So uh, the experience we bring to the table each time something comes up comes from the massive amount of nationwide private closings we do. So uh, the thing I like about my practice the most is we are getting better and learning every day because the, the environment is changing every day, uh, especially with executing on private bridge loans both uh, bridge and term. Great, thank you, Jonathan. Kevin. Hi everyone, uh, Kevin Kim, a partner at Jirasi LLP. Uh, Jirasi LLP is a law firm designed specifically for the private lending industry. We've been around 10 years now. Um, and we are the nation's largest 
law firm exclusively designed to service the private lending industry. Our law firm is vertically integrated to serve the private lending industry, top to bottom. Uh, I chair the, the firm's corporate securities division, um, former SEC attorney. And uh, I manage mostly on the fund formation side, capital markets, and all types of capital raising solutions, both for private lenders, real estate developers, um, and, and also uh, commercial real estate uh, as well. We do uh, fund formation, crowdfunding, uh, public and private offerings all across the country and, and across the world. Uh, my partners' practice groups are primarily servicing private lenders when it comes to their transactional needs, uh, loan documents, support, closing documents, compliance in all 50 states, also handling offshore and, and domestic uh, lending as well. Uh, we also have a very robust platform uh, designed to uh, provide lenders with closing docs at their fingertips uh, called Lightning Docs. We're also very excited to bring to the market a uh, private lenders dedicated conference called Captivate coming in August in Las Vegas at the Cosmopolitan. Very nice. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, John, on Beecham. Hey, thanks, Anthony. It's great to see a lot of, looking through his list of names, a lot of good clients, uh, a lot of people we know really well in the industry, and it's really a good group of people on this uh, on this panel. So look forward to sharing a little bit of thoughts with you today. Uh, I'm John Beecham. Uh, I'm the CEO of Torah Capital Partners. I guess we are the institutional capital kind of representative on the panel. Um, we have been uh, operating since 2016. Uh, we provide capital to lenders around the country. We currently work with about uh, 65 lenders around the United States um, who are partnered with us. Uh, we provide capital on a, on a regular ongoing basis to those lenders. Um, we have funded in excess of $5.3 billion worth of loans, just over 15,000 uh, worth of loans since we were operated. Uh, and in, uh, this year, we'll probably do you know, $2 billion worth of, uh, worth of uh, you know, capital, capital activities. We also are, separately from this, related to us, we're also the largest participant in the capital market side of the business. So we're actually uh, in the market right now with our uh, sixth securitization, uh, which is currently uh, out on the road. We just finished the roadshow last week. Um, so we're active on the, on the capital market side as well. Andrew, our moderator. Really excited to be here. We have kind of an all-star crew of people in the industry. Um, two attorneys who uh, deal with basically uh, the vast majority of lenders in the industry. And then uh, CEO of Turek, who is one of the most active note buyers in the industry. So it's kind of a, a who's who of private lending today. Uh, so with that being said, let's just jump into questions. So um, first question is for John Beecham. So John, uh, what is you happening to the economy and the housing market moving forward? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, looking back at a year ago to now, we've gone through a pretty radical shift uh, in the economy and in sort of our mood and in general sentiment. So uh, going backwards, I think when you had the beginning of Corona, uh, you know, people uh, obviously stayed at home. We saw a significant reduction in, in rehab actions. Obviously there, there are moratoriums and limitations that we have done. Um, you also had foreclosure moratoriums. Uh, you had eviction moratoriums that were in place and a more, probably most importantly, a lack of willingness people to sell their properties, uh, especially one of four family properties. So go forward to a year from now, now uh, activity is open across the country, you know, construction is back on track, 
uh, and the housing market is up 15% year over year. Um, unprecedented, certainly in my professional career, uh, growth in the housing market, and certainly something that I thought very few of us, any of us, would have anticipated a year ago. Um, that being said, as we sit here now, we have a bunch of dynamics that we're pretty bullish in the housing market. You know, we have interest rates that are and, uh, still basically an all-time low. I just refinanced my own home at a two and a half percent coupon uh, for a 30-year loan. So it's, you know, interest rates continue to be low um, and the Federal Reserve made it very clear they're gonna be low for a while. So that's definitely one element of this. The second element you have is that uh, people, especially the professional class and the middle class and upwards, you know, have not been as affected by Corona as, as other people have. So it's really been really horrific for certain certain occupations and certain customer facing kind of segments of, the, of their business. A lot of professional people have worked from home and continue to basically make, make income. And so the reality is you have a lot of people that haven't been spending for the past year uh, that have saved a lot of money at home and uh, are looking for what to do with that money. So as the economy opens up, we're seeing a massive amount of consumer spending, desire to spend money, which is causing employment. You know, I was in, when I was in uh, Florida at a conference recently, my Uber cost $60 to go from the airport to my hotel because it's double the normal price. Um, and where you know, hotels in, couldn't get enough people to clean the rooms. Uh, and so we're seeing that dynamic kind of pass really uh, go across the entire country. From a housing, so that means that employment is uh, improving. Wages are increasing, especially at the lower end. Um, and the economy you know, is definitely on a pretty strong rebound. Uh, as we look forward, we see very little, but there's almost no housing inventory in this country. We are at like 40% of the historical housing inventory that we've seen in the past. Um, people are not selling their homes, um, even now. And I expect that to change over the summer, but you have very little, little inventory. My, my, someone in my staff put their home on the market in suburban New Jersey, and in one week had 40 people walking through their house. Um, so the amount of demand and interest, and we hear stories like that again and again across the country from our, from our lending partners. So the, the amount of demand and interest for housing is pretty robust. So as we go into the rest of the year, what we're gonna see, we think we're gonna see a lot of people selling their houses, Inventory is going to increase. You have a lot of pent up demand. You have people that have been afraid to leave their house. You know, the average person in this country that owns a home is a baby boomer or older. Uh, so much more sensitive to the pandemic than some of the younger people. And so they're, you know, getting vaccinated. They're more willing to leave. They're more willing to sell. That's going to cause inventory to sort of increase over the course of this year. Uh, we also believe that um, uh, the moratoriums either have expired or in the process of expiring. It's kind of a patchwork across the entire country. But clearly that's gonna result in uh, more properties becoming available um, and uh, ultimately going into the market. Uh, so we think both of those things are gonna to lead to you know, continued solid, solid housing price uh, dynamics over the course of the year, with importantly for the private lending industry, more uh, rehab activity occurring in the second half of the year. So that's exactly what we're, we're anticipating as well. Um, I guess what we're, thinking and planning out for is that as the, the various moratoriums are lifted, that we're gonna see a flurry of activity in the foreclosure and short sale markets. And those distressed transactions are gonna to lead to a significant uptick in fix and flip uh, borrowers coming. And then in such a such a hot market, John, as you said, that you have 40 people coming in on the weekends to, to flip a house in this type of environment is kind of a dream. Um, we'll it's, just, a dream it's a dream if you're a seller, not if you're the buyer. <laughs> Certainly good for the sellers right now, the seller's market. 
That's exactly right. It's a, an investor's market as well. Um, so let's switch over to John Hornick. So John, um, as capital continues to come into the private lending bridge and term space, where are you seeing its general availability? Great question, Andrew. So there has been a ton of interest in the bridge space and the term space over the last couple of years. And, and give uh, John Beecham at Turak credit. He was one of the uh, early groups to arrive here in the space. And, and really, they're, they're top class right now in terms of their execution and the ability to buy paper. But he does have competition now. And uh, he's seeing it, I'm sure. Uh, so you have the node aggregators who are interested in coming in. Many don't know the space. They're coming over from more the traditional agency space and some non-QM space. But they're trying to get their way in and buy more paper in the single, um, the bridge and the term space itself. Uh, what we're also seeing is a bunch of capital transactions recently where larger aggregators or originators, I'm sorry, um, were sold. And this is the merger merger idea that's been going on. Now, uh, we, we had discussed this in our pre-call a little bit and every originator out there wants a capital event, an ability to cash out and sell. So uh, when you're ready, Andrew, we could have a discussion on uh, who do, do we think that's feasible for smaller originators? So uh, for instance, the, the Lima One transaction, there was a huge buyout of Lima One. And uh, what, what metrics did Lima One have to achieve in order to get that buyout? What was important for them? So rattling off some things that we know about. One, they had to have capital and a book value. They couldn't just be somebody who bought loans and sold it without capital. Two, they had to have a huge investment in technology. Three, they had to have the ability to hit a billion dollars with their platform whether a year, whether they were doing that or they had the platform to get there. That's what this big Wall Street money is looking for today actively. And they'll invest when that's possible. There's also another group of money out there that's available in order to take smaller stakes in companies to help them achieve those metrics for a possible cash out. So there's never been, this industry has never been more flush with cash than it is today. And uh, finding the right partner for an originator is key, both on a capital equity investment side, as well as a partner like Torac to trade with. Sure. I think we've seen tremendous consolidation in the industry over the last few years with the originators like uh, Five Arch and Corvass being, being bought up by Redwood, uh, Goldman getting into the, the game by acquiring Genesis. There's maybe 10 other examples. My prediction is that over the next few months, over the next, I would say, 18 to 24 months, we're going to see numerous other similar transactions that's going to lead to further consolidation in the industry. So next question is for Kevin. Um, so Kevin, what market conditions have predicated institutional investors' desires for uh, this fix and flip DSCR sort of product? And a lot of things have kind of converged at once. You know, about five or six years ago, when, when, when John didn't have as much competition in the marketplace, you know, it was a question of what is this industry? 
right? And that was a very, it's a relatively young industry comparatively speaking to our colleagues in the agency markets and the conventional markets. And they understood that value proposition. And this was a little bit of a new, uh, I guess, investment product. And we just come out of subprime. That has changed, right? And so, you know, the, the level of sophistication and understanding about the asset class. Uh, and I think it also, it helps that a lot of these folks understand uh, the, the kind of the commercial real estate equivalents of these transactions. They see the kind of similar metrics and similar products and similar kind of uh, dynamics and they see that, right? And so they, they, they like it from that perspective. So from an investment understanding, it was a very hard thing to, for them to understand because when they thought residential, they thought conventional paper. That has changed. And so now you have, now it's just a question mark of fiscal policy and fiscal, I guess, incentives, right? And so with the 17 tax bill, I think we had a lot of additional uh, re reasons to invest. And I think that also sparked it, but there's, there's just an, an amazing need to uh, find yield. And so that's also uh, part of the reason why we see a significant, both Main Street and Wall Street investment into this, into this, into this space, because you're not gonna get the kind of yield, but also the kind of, I guess, risk adjustment that you would in correlated assets you know, that you find on Wall Street. But on top of all that, the yield is a lot healthier, comparatively speaking. So you know, if you look at the fixed income markets and you look at the annuities markets, you're just not seeing the performance that you would in our sector, even with the fact that we have yield compression over the past five years. So while yield compression is a natural evolution, in my opinion, because larger capital sources, larger institutions have come in, lower cost of capital, it's still a healthy rate of return, comparatively speaking. So there's no reason why you wouldn't jump in if you have a desk that understands the type of product and would want to invest in this type of product. My understanding is right now is that folks that are, as from a Wall Street standpoint, folks that are late to the game are really having trouble to jump in, which is why you're starting to see a shift in attitude, not, you know, let's, let's buy up all the volume we can buy. That, that kind of, that competition is pretty robust right now the change in attitude now is, okay, well, let's see what we can do from either an LP standpoint uh, or a minority stakeholder standpoint. And to John, uh, Jonathan's point, we had talked earlier, he talked earlier about, you know, consolidation and M&A in the space and buyouts happening. And that's the glamorous conversation we talked to, you know, everyone knows about, right? But what's also not commonly known about is a lot of these minority state positions that are being taken by uh, various, I would, cons I would call them investment consultancies, right? And a lot of these groups, out there that have been formed and they come from different, you know, different institutional desks and they form, former, you know, CMBS or MBS traders or whatever you want to, wherever they come from. And they're creating these interesting value propositions for smaller and medium-sized organizations to really scale. And so, and, and, and create that massive volume proposition uh, for a potential future buyout by a larger institution. And so that is now a trend as well. Uh, we're starting to see them also act in the capacity of, um, kind of like a, uh, a liaison to uh, other people who may want to buy loans but aren't out there publicly buying them and they don't have an aggregation arm, but they're still interested in the asset. And so there's a lot of different strategies being taken because they like the asset class. And at its core, it's a very, very solid position to be in. If you think about it, short-term investment, high rate of return, secured by real estate, typically in first position, you know, medium LTV, so from that perspective, there's, a, there's no reason why you wouldn't jump in. And, and this is echoed throughout a lot of the, the trade, trade publications 
that are that feature our friend John here. We see him there. He's now the fix and flip model, right? And so we see him out there in the trade magazines and they're talking about it as well. And it's becoming a standard issue investment as compared to what it was even five years ago, which was kind of like a lot of folks were scratching their heads. What is this? I don't understand this. So that is the biggest driver I feel is, is a, a greater understanding of the asset class. Sure, I think uh, with the yields being as as high as they are and the stock market being as inflated as it is and just kind of a general skepticism in so many other markets, there's just been such a large capital inflow from, I mean, publicly traded REITs, foreign banks, hedge funds, you name it. It seems like everyone's kind of clamoring just to get into the space. So it's the best fixed income alternative you can find out there. I mean, if you look at the way it plays out, it produces a fixed income like return for the investor. The taxes aren't the best, but still, and and you just can't beat that. I mean, comparatively speaking, there's no volatility to it. I think it's one of the best investments any investor can make. And I, I think that just in the coming years, like with the the housing market with no end in sight, um, it, those returns are just going to increase. Well, guys, guys, I hate to rain on everybody's parade a little bit. And what a great asset class it is, but we do have uh, uh, a lot of moratoriums on foreclosures here. The government's done a spectacular job in screwing up the natural life cycle of a loan, and we still have to deal with that. Number one, That's number. True. We have, uh, uh, we have a whole segment of our society sitting at home and not working now. And I don't know about you, but the need for, for quality labor and finding it is becoming more difficult to get, which means there's inflation around the corner, which will have some impact on what we're talking about. So while, while Mr. Beecham, who spoke earlier, and uh, Kevin, who spoke about you know, the metrics of things that are good, there are some obstacles to get over. Now, you know, there's an old saying out there, don't fight the Fed, and that's held true forever. And inflation is in check on uh, relatively speaking categories, but uh, we are definitely gonna have obstacles, uh, especially as we back away from these foreclosure moratoriums and uh, what happens. And I don't think that's just gonna be a light switch. I think that's gonna be a gradual drawn out thing, extension in the blue states, the red states, you're allowed to go a lot more quickly and you could look for those economies to stabilize at least more naturally as we come off the government stimulus uh, more quickly. So I think we all have to be cautious. It's not just going to be, you know, I want this to be the go-go, the, uh, you know, the, the go-go uh, 2020s or the roaring 20s, as they say. Uh, but uh, I think we have to uh, be cautious about what happens. I, I, I kind of agree more. We, you know, when I interviewed Andrew, your partner, last a couple months ago, and I also interviewed a couple other clients, the, 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 the key was like, what is it, like cautiously optimistic yeah. because of the concerns associated with, I think the biggest concern from my perspective is the cost of, cost of building right now. Yeah. Lumber costs are through the roof, labor costs are through the roof. Just generally the concern is if there will likely be an increase in rehabs and flips, yeah. well, the cost of lumber itself is what, 5X, right? And so that is a concern that a lot of us are feeling, there's also the cost of oil. And so that, that, is, that is driving a concern. I think we're gonna, and I, and I think that there's a lot of people are kind of like waving their hands over this, like Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, this is not the, the inflation you need to worry about, but it is, it is a real thing. Whether it's temporary or not, we have to see, I think a lot of it has to do with the oil markets, but 
I'm still very positive on the real on the real estate values. I think because they're very very you know. So you guys mentioned something you know selling how you know 48 guests here in in California. You you put a house on the market before it even gets listed somewhere. It's already sold. And it's sold for hundred grand over asking. It's 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 insane right now, and you can't find a place to move. That's the hardest part. So I have I have a ton of colleagues and friends who are literally renting. <laughs> they they sold their house and they're renting because they can't find a new place to move. They can't yeah, find a new place. Yeah. yeah, no, it's hard. And I think if you back away, I mean, we we're all, we're talking a lot about kind of the short term stuff that's happening, right? And all this stuff is true about uh, the moratoriums and, and the lack of inventory. But I think if you step back and look at the bigger picture for you know really the ten year picture. Uh, we have underinvested in our housing stock in this country for over a decade. Um, we have like 3 million, we've underbuilt about 3 million units of new housing in this country over the past decade. And so you have on top of this whole thing, you have a couple other factors. Number one, you have, you know, lack of housing, lack of new housing, leading to affordability crisis, lack of inventory in this country. We've underinvested in this country. We're still underinvesting in this country in new housing. Um, and number two, you also have the dynamic of, you know, people sitting in their house and looking around your house for a year. There's nothing, nothing like sitting in your house for a year and looking at your house to make you realize two things. Uh, number one, uh, you don't like your house. It's too small and you know everything about it that you never knew. Uh, and number two, you get to know your spouse uh, really, really well, which could be good or bad or whoever else is living in your house. That's a topic for a different sort of panel than this one. But on, on, on the housing side, a lot of people have realized that, especially as the world changes uh, from a, a commuting, working in the office kind of environment to a more work from home environment where that's gonna become acceptable at some level, certainly more than it was a year and a half ago. You know, that issue of not liking your house is even more exacerbated Because if you're sitting in the dining room table for a year on your laptop, kind of typing away and getting carpal tunnel, after a year of that, you're like, this kind of sucks. Maybe I want a home office. Maybe I want a different layout. And the housing stock we have in this country is not set up for that. It's maybe one person can go buy up, but certainly the entire you know, population can't buy up into a bigger place. And so as we think about the nature of our housing, what it means to us, if it's fundamentally a place of work and a place to live, that means the housing we have is not adequate. So you have not only do you have this, you know, underinvestment in new housing and underinvestment ground up, you have this massive, you know, I think potential need, and we're going to see how this, you know, next few months going to become really clear. But how much companies are tolerate working from home? But that becomes a real sustained dynamic. You're going to see a shift in populations where you don't have to be commutable to cities, you know, so places that are more rural that may not have been appealing before because of the distance are going to be more attractive. Cities are going to be slightly less attractive. You're definitely gonna have that dynamic. You're gonna have a dynamic to sort of transform the nature of our housing. So our market, you know, the, the bridge market, the rehab market, which has historically been a market about like taking old houses or foreclosure properties or decrepit old, you know, things that are just not necessarily decrepit, but like underinvested for a long time and investing in those and fixing those and selling those. I think our market's gonna shift a lot towards changing, solving these problems and changing the nature of our housing. So maybe it's expanding housing, maybe it's creating a different layout of housing. We're financing a lot of, you know, a huge amount of what we're doing right now is, you know, financing conversions of properties. So you have a single family property is turning into a two family or a four family, or in some cases even a six family, or, or you're tearing down a small property and you're building out multifamily in the same place. So all these things are kind of solving these core issues of the bigger shortage of housing, which is all exacerbated by the fact people don't want to move right now and rates are low. But even, even when that goes away, 
we still have this need to think about what kind of housing we need in this country and who's going to finance that. And the other point I want to make, banks are penalized right now in a lot of cases for doing ground on construction loans. The, it, it's sort of bizarre, actually, if, you, if you're a policy person. And you're like, okay, we have this one side of the government that's the Federal Reserve and it's the OCC that sort of regulates banks. And they basically say, if you do ground construction, you know, it's punished and high, high capital charge and sort of it's, you get a lot of scrutiny for it. But then all the housing people in this country sort of recognize we need to build more housing. So this whole issue is exacerbated by the fact that our banks really aren't you know, incentivized to sort of do a lot of this ground of construction, which means the nature of this industry we're all talking about is becoming private capital is becoming really important, even more important, because solving a lot of those needs, the fundamental social needs that we have and the housing needs that aren't really being addressed by our normal financial system. I think that, I mean, private, private lenders are coming in and replacing banks in a lot of circumstances, particularly with the 30-year permanent DSCR product. Um, instead of going to a bank and getting a bank loan, it's going to take you 60, 90 days to close and a crazy underwriting package and a ton of question, questions and document requests. You're going to work with a private lender and close that same loan three weeks, four weeks at a rate more or less the same, plus or minus 50 to 100 basis points. Of course. Again, John's point though, the real question you have to ask yourself, especially if you're a private lender looking to expand or you're kind of, all you've done is fix and flip is you got to learn, you got to, you got to add construction to your toolkit because construction is the future. DSCR is also the future, but you know, more and more clients are shifting into construction, learning how to underwrite construction, ground up construction, understanding funds control, understanding pullbacks, understanding interest reserves, a whole different game as compared to fix and flip or DSCR. It is going to become a necessity. I mean, we, we have a lot of land in the U.S. A lot of it needs to be built out and we need to build new housing stock. If we don't do it, this is going to continue. John's right. And, and uh, to Kevin and John's point, uh, ground up construction is a different animal than rehab. Um, it is a completely different underwrite. You have to worry about both uh, approvals, whether the land has been improved properly, whether you have utilities to the property, including sewer, electric, water, things that could stop you from access issues. It's way more sophisticated from a uh, analysis standpoint. So you gotta surround yourself with the right underwriters, the right legal to recognize the ground up construction risks. Um, it's also gonna be price more because unlike what uh, people like to believe, ground up construction, there's a lot more risk to it than basic rehab uh, and clearly on uh, term stuff. So keep it in mind, uh, I agree with both my colleagues here that uh, ground up construction is gonna take a bigger role from the private lender and uh, you guys should all staff up and get the right people you can now. Look, I think that with all of the major banks, once COVID hit, pulling back from ground up construction, whether it's only doing uh, ground up loans with their existing clients or not at all. I and mean, we saw big banks like Valley who were super active in the space just say, hey, we're only working with our existing clients. So I think because there's such a void from uh, the traditional uh, bank construction lenders in the space, um, the people that step up are gonna have 
just a large opportunity of deals that where they can be selective and kind of just do the best locations, the best, uh, best sponsors. I think that's really going to be key is just working with the best in class in order to have a sustainable model. Um, so I'll use that as a segue. So John Beecham, uh, what lending products are hot right now and why? Sure. Well, we're definitely seeing a shift and we're kind of touching some of these topics a little bit as we've talked here. But if you had talked to us a year and a half ago or two years ago, you know, the vast majority of what we're doing is one to four family bridge loans. Um, and not only us, but frankly, the entire market, we're seeing a, a massive shift away. You know, I think, I think it's personally, I think it's temporary for a lot of the reasons we talked about away from the one to four family bridge loan. It's not like that's lower in dollars, but like the growth in sort of other products uh, are, is eclipsed it. So as if you talk about right now, May, 2021, the product that's really hot is our DSCR loan. Um, it's a you know, 30 year loan, it's underwritten based upon, for those who don't know, it's a 30 year permanent loan underwritten based upon the cash flow of the property, not the borrower's income. Uh, and it competes with GSE loans, which also will do stabilized properties on a 30 year basis, um, because the GSE is basically underwrite based upon personal income and they won't let you borrow through an LLC. You have to borrow through your individual name, which most investors don't want to do. So the GSE product is kind of really not set up for this market. Um, and so we have a product that allows, um, which others have replicated in a lot of ways, but we have a product that allows uh, borrowers to go in there and buy a property, a rental property, underwrite it based upon the rental income of the property, qualify based upon the rental income of the property and sort of get a 30 year loan at very efficient rates. Um, that is a really attractive product right now. I mean, we currently have, nearly $100 million just in the pipeline for the next few weeks to sort of buy that, that, uh, that we're gonna be buying very quickly. Uh, and then also the thing that we're seeing a lot of um, activity in is small multifamily uh, bridge loans as well. Uh, so when you go, you know, in this country, we divide the world in the one to four, which for whatever US reason, we call two through four single family. <laughs> and then five plus is multifamily and goes into commercial real estate. You know, a lot of that uh, smaller balance kind of five plus unit properties I would say friend of one to four family, but that's still technically five more, five or more units. Uh, we're seeing a lot of traction in that. And that's a harder, you know, it's a harder thing to underwrite, just like John talked about, which is entirely right. Ground of construction is a different animal, a lot of different risks you gotta consider. Uh, multifamily is a different animal, a lot of different risks you gotta consider as well. Uh, you have vacancy, you have occupancy trends, you have market rental rates. A lot of times you're, you're projecting sort of what the rental rates will be after the rehab is done. Uh, and the nature and the scope of the project is going to be a lot bigger than they are in one of our family uh, bridge loans as well. But those, those are products that we're seeing a lot of traction. Um, and as, I, as we go in the second half of the year, I think that's going to reverse a little bit. I think you'll see, um, for the reasons we talked about, one of four family bridge really kick off as we get into you know, late summer and sort of towards the end of the year. As a lot of people start selling their properties and more inventory comes to the market. Fundamentally, the, the one of four family bridge loan is a purchase product. So if you don't have inventory, you can't buy a property. Uh, so it's going to be somewhat driven by the amount of uh, for sale inventory in the country. But like I said, I think that'll change and increase pretty significantly over the second half of this year. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. I think that I mean, we're super bullish on the DSCR products more than the fix and flip, but it's, uh, it's going to be exciting to see uh, what comes about over the next uh, couple of quarters. 
So uh, next question is for John Hornick. Uh, so John, what do you think could be learned from the recent mergers and acquisitions of originators in our space? So we, we talked about this brief, briefly before I brought it up. So, uh, you know, the, the dream of all uh, brokers are to, is to become lenders. And they could do that in, in two ways. They could, they could table fund, get table funded by somebody else. Somebody like WeLend can correspond lend and table fund them. Somebody like Rock Capital, Rock 360 can table fund them. Or they can close themselves with, with bridge equity lines and then sell to guys like Torek. So that's the, uh, uh, how people begin. They go from broker to table funder, to aggregating to sell, and then hopefully to building a real business. And if this was Shark Tank, we would you know, criticize somebody in front of us and say why we weren't willing to buy you as an originator, what you're lacking, which John may be a fun show to do, right? Yeah, sure. That would be entertaining. I mean, what do you need to build yourself up to get that cash out? Maybe not the best for our business development efforts, though. If you're, no, you know, you're going to reject the originator, but yeah. Right, you want, you want them to stay back, right? I got it. But but just think of it this way, John, there'd be more flow into the space with the exit strategy, right? Not there that you go. goes on. But so let's talk about what you need. You need an investment in capital and technology, right? You have to be able to originate or look to originate a billion dollars worth of loans. You don't necessarily have to do a billion but you got to have the platform to execute a billion and an outside investor is going to come in and take a look at it. You must have a net value in your company. You must have cash on your books. As much as John wants to buy every loan, every originator is making, you got to have some value in cash. It's important because no one is going to buy you, merge with you, if you have no capital to continue operations to handle a downturn for six, eight, a year. You have to have real money in your company. It can't be just sweat equity, as they say. And finally, you're going to trade at a multiple of your, your net income. And what that multiple is, is depending on the space with, with, a, with a cap of one and a half to 2% of your book value. So all these, and it's out there, you can talk to bankers, they priced all the ones in our space. And you know, the cash outs are big. They're not as, you know, tremendous as others would want, but there is clearly an exit strategy out there for originators to grow and get that cash out they want. The difficult thing is it does not happen overnight. It's not a quick exit. You must reinvest in your companies every day and become better because these bankers come in and take a look and you can maybe fool them on the way in, but once they open the books, they take, look, take a look at your policies, your procedures, your guidelines. They will know if, you are, if you're a broker or if you're truly an originator. And I mean, that's what, we, you know, at Private Lender Law, we help with that. We help bring you along from those who start as brokers to grow into hopefully an entity that could be sold if that's your dream. So, um, you know, it, it's an exciting time to be in our space to touch on what Kevin said earlier. Uh, you know, over the last six years, we've seen the institutionalization of our space. When we began here, when I met John Beecham, it had to be almost 10 years ago at a Pitbull event. And we looked at each other and we said, we want to do business together. We just don't know how to do it. And we found each other when he started Torac around six years ago now. I, 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 I had more hair back then, by the way. Yeah, you did. But that's a different discussion for another panel. But, but when we, but when we, but when we, but, you know, 
there, there's watching this space mature, watching institutions get involved, watching the institutionalization of the space and watching and colleagues, companies grow. There's been nothing more rewarding to watch them succeed. And it's just an exciting time to be a part of this space. Yeah, no, it's, it's been it's been a radical change. When we started, you know, uh, coupons were, you know, 10, 12, 14%. And, uh, you know, two or three points of interest. Now we're seeing coupons, you know, in a, you know, you know, mid to high single digits for sure. Uh, and fees, you know, lending fees have gone down by half. So, um, and frankly, the, the product for the borrowers improved radically. Like we started out with like, you talk, you know, four or five years ago, we were doing Dutch interest and you, you pay interest on money you haven't received yet, right? And now the markets have shifted away from that towards, uh, you know, pay interest as, as the loans advanced over time, which is a much better product. You know, LTVs have gotten, uh, you know, more consistent across the market. Um, and you've had a lot of standardization in the way people think about uh, the product. And so it's, there's been a lot of homogenization standardization of the product over the past four years. And honestly, frankly, borrowers are the winners in a lot of cases because rates are down, lending terms are better. And as a result, you know, the statistic I track a lot is of all the flips in the country, what percentage are actually financed? And it's kind of a wild statistic. If you, if you think about first time home buyers in this country, something like 80% of them take financing. So, and frankly, every real estate segment, almost all of it is financed, because obviously financing is cheap and it leverages your returns. In our segment, you know, five, six years ago, it was like 30% of borrowers actually took some foreign financing. So basically the market was saying to us collectively, your product sucks, I don't wanna, I don't wanna deal with you, and I'd rather actually use my own cash to buy the property and sell it myself. And so that percentage has increased consistently over time. So the market, for lending is growing as we improve our products and make them more customer friendly. And as we've institutionalized space so that the pie is going to increase based naturally, which is something I think we should all be proud of. It's really helpful. We also, you know, listen, you know, five years ago, people call themselves hard money lenders. I think that term is phasing out. Um, you know, we're not, look at that. We lend private, private, you know, I sell hard money, I guess. So, but it's private hard money. So it's sort of modified. Um, you know, John is private lender law. A lot of companies are moving away from that. So a lot of those kind of legacy terms that, you know, we as industry sort of used four and five years ago, we're, we're kind of getting away from because it's a, it's not hard. There's nothing hard about this product. What we're doing is we're actually enabling people to improve their properties. We're giving them fair terms, consistent closing, good rates and good service levels. And it's actually, you know, I don't want to say it's easy from a credit standpoint, but sort of easy to get. And it's a product that really helps you achieve your goals as an investor. So it's, we're seeing, we're seeing everything about the market change, including including the nomenclature and the words we're using to describe ourselves. But that also goes to the concept of the consolidation we're seeing, right? Because you have more and more of a blueprint, I guess, of to create a valuable enterprise that is valuable to be sold, right? That that has become you're seeing a lot of kind of standardization when it comes to how the business should be set up from a uh, operation standpoint, but also just from a, a capital structuring standpoint. And also on the buy side, we're starting to see pretty good figures that make sense now as it pertains to multipliers, right? And so, you know, we just, you know, five years ago, if you asked me to do an M&A deal in, in this space, I would, be, I would be kind of racking my brain to figure out, okay, I don't really know the best way to value this company because there's not much of a comparison out there, right? Even five years ago. Today, 
it's become a little bit more standardized. Now the multiplier ranges are pretty broad, but there's still a pretty fair number. I, 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 I venture a guess between anywhere between X3 to a uh, three X to about uh, seven to nine X in some aggressive situations with really, really valuable software, but standard kind of market multiplier tends to be between five and seven for the right operation, including like John said, you got cash on books. You got, you, you got a balance sheet. You got some kind of credit line. You got some kind of liquidity solution, capital partner you're selling loans to. You got an actual operation. You know, it's not just by yourself. And you know, if you've got your own proprietary software that's actually valuable and usable and marketable, that's going to be an additional value add. But what's also very important to consider is servicing. Um, we've also, you know, we've seen the trend in that direction. I think servicing is a very uh, foregone. Foregone conclusion. A lot of things, you know, should I do it? Should I not do it? It's kind of overlooked, and I, I, I tend to see a lot of value being a, a, uh, attached to that when we when we actually see term sheets come through. Um, and the last component has to do with book book value by book the, uh, the value of the book of business, right? And the last thing people should be thinking about when when we're dealing with this kind of M and A stuff is. You know, don't expect like a golden parachute, you're done, you're out. You know, you're going to be sticking around for a little while here, most likely for the life of the business, five years, earn out some type of, you know, you're going to be sticking to the business for a long time because this buyer is going to want you and your book and your relationships to be tied to this business that, that, that they just invested a bunch of money into because otherwise it's not as valuable. And that, that also raises the question of valuations when it comes to, um, you know, what is the value of a book of business in our sector, right? And so, uh, but it's also very, it's, it's all very interesting stuff. And it, it, it raises really great conversations in these panels, but also interesting deals uh, that are structured very uniquely uh, uh, across the industry. So. I think that new players, new entrants are gonna emerge in the space. I, I would think that the Amazons or Walmarts of the worlds are gonna diversify into the financial services sector and that we're going to see just new entrants really institutionalize the space in the coming years, but just my two cents. Uh, next question is for Kevin. So Kevin, what market conditions have predicated Main Street investors' desires for the residential asset class? So Main Street's a very different conversation, right? And so Main Street investors, meaning regular old investors like you and me, right? We're not talking about Wall Street. And you know, this industry used to be primarily funded by mainstream investors, right? You know, way back when it was essentially co-lender or trustee investors and fund LPs driving the industry. And that, and then, like I said before, the education and the understanding of the market allowed institutions to jump in. But, you know, mainstream investors still love this asset class. You know, I'm a mainstream investor. I love this asset class. And for all the same reasons as before, but if you multiply that even more, right? There's so much volatility on Wall Street. I mean, even today, there's another GameStop happening apparently. And now it's coming to our industry apparently. UWM is now the, the, the stock to be shorted. Who knows, right? And so there's so much uncertainty. And for someone as conservative as myself, I, I don't need that, right? I, I may dabble, but I want something a little bit more reliable, right? I like I understand real estate. I can touch it. I can feel it. I think that drives a lot of that, that psychology. It drives a lot of it. Um, but also taxes, you know, the biggest complaint in our industry has been taxes, distributions, interest payments. If you're doing co-lender, if you're doing trustee, or if you're doing a fund investment, that's always been taxed in ordinary income because we're dealing with interest income. Uh, 
That has changed in 2017. From 17 till now, we saw a massive influx of mortgage funds shifting to a REIT. Why? Because of that 20% pass-through deduction that came in the 17 tax bill. That drove a lot of investment. I, I know a ton of RIAs, and they've all said, "I don't want to. I don't want to allocate to a fund if they're not a REIT." Plain and simple, right? And I understand it, right? Because why? Why would you invest in a fund that didn't offer a 20% tax deduction? So that's also a big, big incentivizer. I feel uh, for a lot of these uh, groups to jump in, and then also the, the the folks who are kind of retired and professionally investing that pass through also helps them uh, re reduce their uh, tax liability as well. So since 17 till now, we saw a big you know, I guess, increase in allocations from RAAs and people who represent mainstream investors for those reasons as well. Yeah, and I think just, just expounding on that a little bit, Kevin, you know, we've seen a shift. We haven't really talked about this, but it's kind of implied by the whole topic. But given the, the topics of institutional capital, the way this whole market is finance has been through a massive shift. And we've gone through oh, yeah. a bunch of phases. Like if you go, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was all funds, as you mentioned, or they're selling whole loans to retail investors. And that worked in this market because the yields were high. They were 10, you know, 12%. People were like, okay, I can invest in that first lean, you know, piece of real estate that get a 10, 12% coupon, and that's a great investment for myself. That is, and for people who only work in the private lending space, that's anomalous. Okay, in all the rest of the mortgage world, nobody is buying loans unlevered and putting them in the, in the funds in April because there's not enough yield in them to kind of make that work. Right, so the rest of the mortgage world sort of works on some sort of financing. You need leverage, you need securitize, you need to bank that. You need something to kind of make the yield work. And as yields have gone down, you've seen a couple of things kind of happen. Uh, number one is you've seen the number of funds that are happening has gone down. And certainly the percentage of the market that's funded by funds has gone radically down over time. And the funds that are out there tend to be, you know, relegated to some of the, you know, corner cases or some of the, you know, slightly outside the institutional credit box type products because the institutions are buying at better rates and the fund investors are all messed at. And so it ends up being a better deal for the originator to sell to institutions. I think the other thing we kind of saw come and go, which I don't think we really talk about a lot is, is crowdfunding. So the, the first idea was really, we're gonna sell whole loans. And then the second idea was let's sell little chunks of whole loans. And crowdfunding has pretty much failed in our industry. Um, I think that a lot of companies have tried it. It's not really an efficient way to sort of run your business. You don't get leverage on it. As yields go down, it becomes harder and harder to run that. Um, and the administration costs of actually managing all those crowd investors ends up being really high. And the liability you have for managing the crowd investors ends up being really high. Um, so we're seeing that kind of go away as, a, as an idea in the asset class. Um, and so you're really, this is becoming, it, it's different for this world, but it's kind of consistent with the whole rest of the mortgage world, what's happening here. And that it's becoming a asset class that's been institutionalized like, like everywhere else. So it's, it's more like we're catching up to the rest of the finance world as opposed to the finance world's kind of coming into here and we're seeing all these things happening to the market, but it's really just making this consistent with the rest of the you know, mortgage world. John, I, I, like to, I like to challenge a little bit there because I do see a lot of similarities in our sector, right, on the resi side, to our colleagues in the commercial, you know, small balance commercial bridge space, right? The asset classes are somewhat similar in, in I guess, terms and economics. Yeah. You know, and and that that marketplace had also a, a big influx of institutional capital, but you've also had folks that had, you know, you still had a segment of the market that needed to be there for the esoteric deals and also the deals that just wouldn't fit the boxes, right? And so to the point of the whole corners, right? You know, and, and I, I think there's room for both, 
when it comes to our space, just because while yields are coming down, they're still very healthy. We're not looking at, you know, two and a half percent rate. We're still looking at, I mean, I would say what national average still in the eights, right? Seven to eight, yeah. probably, like right? Like yeah. So there's a lot of meat. There's still, comparatively speaking, I think there's yeah. a lot of with leverage. And also that goes to the point, the, the popularity and availability of, of non-mark to market credit facilities for operators across the country has also increased as well, mm -hmm. leading to more sophistication in capital strategy. So, yeah, but it's, you know, if you, if you get a relatively small, if, well, I think first of all, rates are going to continue to compress. So that unlevered to the yield play is going to become harder and harder. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, going to, this is going to normalize. And number two, I think, you know, there, there is a type of leverage you can get if you're borrowing, you know, $20 million and a type of leverage you can get if you're borrowing a billion dollars. Sure. It's a very different sort of level of efficiency and sort of yield and everything else. So it's um you don't you don't see the rest of the mortgage world uh, doing we don't we don't take home loans and put them into funds. I mean it's, mm. it's not not something it's, it's bought by banks, it's bought by the GSEs. Uh, it's sold it's, apparently now it's sold to the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, which owns them all. Um, but yep, that, that's that's typically how our home loan market works in this country. But I think you're right. The small balance commercial market has a lot of similarities. Small balance commercial, especially bridge market does have a lot of similarities and basically overlapping in some ways with the mm -hmm. fixed and flip market. But when you get outside of that, really in like like term loans and resi or frankly, uh, larger balance kind of commercial real estate loans, those are very efficient. Absolutely, yeah. And and you see that you saw those loans, have the loans compressed faster because of the opportunities, you know, CMBS, RMBS, same, 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 same solution at the end of the day, securitize and leverage. Right? I used to work at Deutsche Bank in the commercial real estate group, and I was doing, you know, back before I moved into this world that's a decade ago, um, I was doing uh, large balance commercial real estate lending, um, generally $100 million off loans on, you know, assets all over the United States. And the point that's relevant is every one of my bosses at Deutsche Bank left to form a uh, CRE bridge fund. <laughs> so basically, they're $20 million and up bridge loans. Um, there is a CLO market that finance that really efficiently, and, and like everyone is kind of smart in the you know commercial real estate lending space over the last to do that, and that market's gotten very very efficient now. So it's it's this the beauty of this world from an efficiency standpoint is you don't have many people who do this well in the scheme of the whole financing market. So you still have yields that are relatively high, but certainly compressed. I agree with that. I'm going to throw the next question over to you, John Beecham. Uh, so, John, given your experience in the space, what do you feel is the best predictor of performance? Um, for, uh, you mean at the deal side, and we're talking about, I think, bridge loans, I assume? Correct. Um, we, we see a bunch of predictors of performance. Number one is, you know, we're, probably number one is where the property is and how liquid it is. So, a, you know, a $2 million house in a $500,000 neighborhood is not going to sell. Um, and it's, you get really askew, a 500, even $750,000 house in a $500,000 Dow neighborhood, it's going to do really well. So number one, which is kind of hard, you got to look at individually is sort of conformity to the property to that particular submarket. Is that property liquid? Is it going to sell? Um, number two is getting the valuations right. Um, you know, we see a lot of, I say creativity in terms of valuations. Um, history has told us, you know, there's a couple, only, only three rules of lending. I won't go through them all, but one of them is, you know, when the lender determines his own value, eventually the conflicts of interest uh, arise and the values get skewed. So 
we're seeing various versions of kind of, you know, lesser forms of valuations. I mean, that over time has always proven to be uh, a, a path to losses. Um, so if you don't get the value right, you're going to be wrong. And then number three is you're getting the budget right. You know, if you if you have a good deal, you can get the value right. I mean, that budget is, you know, you think it's hundred thousand dollars, it really turns out to be two hundred fifty thousand dollars because the roof needs to be replaced and have holes in it. You need a budget for that, or even the normal stuff. I mean, you you find mold or you know the normal things, but even beyond that, getting the budget wrong is sort of the other thing that sort of drives uh, you know drives credit performance. Now that's actually losses. Delinquencies are driven by liquidity which is sort of a, actually in this market is sort of a slightly different thing. So delinquencies don't always lead to losses in this market, but do people have the amount of money to pay the interest? Do they have the amount of money to deal with construction overruns? You know, when that, you know, lumber costs ends up being 5X, do they have liquidity to sort of pay for that? They need to go under. So that drives a lot of delinquencies, usually not given our LTVs losses. The losses are driven by those other factors I just mentioned. In non-conforming properties, bad appraisals and bad budgets. So Andrew, just to touch on that, just bigger picture, if you ask me the same question, I definitely say experience is huge. You know, does this borrower have the ability to execute on their plan? Yes. Second thing I'd say is their exit strategy. What is it? How are they actually going to pay this loan back? Are they going to sell? Are they going to lease? How, how detailed is this plan? And the third is always liquidity. How much or how much skin do they have in the game? Right? How much one are they committed to the project? But two, how can they provide cost overruns? How are they going to execute on this if there is a pandemic that extends the amount of time? And you know, the, the biggest issue I think we see in our space is uh, the lack of liquidity sometimes. Uh, but and that's why they're coming to our space to borrow. Those who are liquid, liquid, those who are credit worthy, do not come to private lenders to borrow. They just don't. So it's balancing that and getting our hands as underwriters around the value of the real estate and the likelihood we have to foreclose on this particular borrower will we'll determine if this is a, a good deal or not. Entirely. And I think that's how we all have to look at the situation is hope for the best and prepare for the worst in terms of needing to take over the asset. Um, and then Kevin, I'll just throw the same question over to you. Just get your input. I mean, so indicators of performance or non-performance in our space? Is that what the question was? Yeah. There's a lot of different components, but I think the, the there's going to be a real crisis that comes if we don't get this housing issue under control. Just you know, as, a, as a general, I mean, at the end of the day, our clients need to make loans on houses, right? And so... I'm really concerned about it because, you know, we see a boom in the ADU space and there's only so much room to build ADUs on these properties. I, I, I feel like that, that the fundamental premise of like, we need to be able to build houses, right? Or we have out, not that many houses out there. And so that, that really needs to be solved. And, and a, lot of, a lot of cities make it very, uh, counties make it very hard to build, very hard. Permitting and zoning and all that nonsense is just a nightmare. In my home state of California, it is the worst. Um, so that is something that we get, we really need to think through as an industry. Um, and I think they'll also, you know, to John's point that borrowers, I mean, the borrowers need to really get, really build their experience and learn. I, I like the fact that there are uh, educational groups out there right now that are focused on training new lenders. I love that. I saw a Facebook group the other day. All they do is talk about 
and there are really good discussion points about how you know how to do these loans and how to do these these deals. I think that's going to be also important. So we can't forget about new market entries and education there, and it's oftentimes forgotten as an industry grows. And so education is going to be a fundamentally important thing because the lenders are becoming much more sophisticated. The borrowers need to as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it boils down to the inventory. We really got to fix this problem. So I think that everyone's kind of growing up in terms of like lenders are becoming more efficient, quicker, uh, more technology, technologically advanced. And if they don't, they can't really keep up. And it's, I think the same goes for our borrowers. Um, so I, I think we've kind of just reached our, uh, our time limit here. Um, but I, I'd say that we're, we're really happy to have had uh, John Beecham from Turac, John Hornick from Private Lender Law, and Kevin Kim from Jurosity. Uh, just really someone just the most noteworthy and uh, some of the best guys in the space. So just really just uh, tremendously uh, grateful that you guys could have come out and you spent the time with us. Uh, to all the members in our audience, you can look forward to uh, John Hornick's next conference uh, Pitfall, you can look forward to Kevin Kim's next conference, Captivate, and uh, we are very excited to have had you here today. Thank you, Andrew. Good job, man. Good Thank job. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, guys. Congrats to everybody. John, Jonathan, you know, uh, Kevin, Andrew, another fantastic webinar sponsored by Whelan. And uh, I want to thank Whelan as our sponsor. And Andrew, tell us, uh, you have another one coming up in June. Can you tell us a little bit about that one as well? Sure. So I think we kind of alluded to it uh, at this webinar, but the next one's going to be discussing the effects of the eviction moratorium ending and just what that's going to look like on a national level um, and how that's going to affect our, our industry. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. This concludes the webinar. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, Thank you Andrew, guys. Kevin. Thank you. Bye, everyone.